2: Henry VIII's fifth queen, Catherine Howard, was the wife with whom Henry had the greatest age gap. Like Jane Seymour, she had been a maid-in-waiting to his previous queen. Her motto was non autre volonté que le sien," no other will but his. But like her cousin, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard was beheaded on Henry VIII's orders for allegedly committing adultery. Unlike Anne, she received no trial and was condemned by a parliamentary act of attainder. And she has not come off well in recent years. Historians have called her a good-time girl, a natural tart, a stupid, oversexed young woman, and an empty-headed wanton. But not today's guest. Gareth Russell is the author of one of the very finest recent biographies of any of Henry VIII's wives, His book is Young and Damned and Fair, The Life and Tragedy of Catherine Howard at the Court of Henry VIII, and I asked him to join me to give me his judgment on Catherine. Gareth, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Catherine Howard. I loved your book, so it's such a treat to talk to you about her. Let's start with the thorny beginning, the question of when she was born. So what's the evidence for her birthday? And how did you figure out what you thought was the most likely date?
3: Mm. I spent a lot of time looking slightly insane in the Duke Humphrey Library at Oxford because it's where a lot of the wills are kept. And that's where you find a lot of this really good information about who was leaving what money to who or are people's names cropping up? A lot of people will know that really in the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a theory that was quite popular that she was born in 1525, which would mean she was 14 or 15 when she married Henry VIII. Fortunately, that doesn't seem to be true, actually. The most likely date of birth seems to be 1522. And I did that by looking at the wills of her grandmother, Isabel, her husband, Sir John, also looking at some family records, but crucially, a report from the French ambassador, Charles de Mariac who went on a hunting trip with her in 1540. And they seem to have spent actually quite a lot of time together, and he is very specific that she was 18 at the time of her debut at court, which seems far too big a margin of error for someone who's seen someone at such a length of time. And also looking at the biographical details of other young women who made their debut at court at the same time, overwhelmingly the evidence is for 1522 with a possibility of 1523.
2: That's really helpful. So she would have been there for 18 when she married Henry. Yes. Okay. So tell us then about the family into which Catherine Howard was born. Should we assume that she was born into a world of comfort and financial security?
3: Yes and no. Father Edmund was the younger son of the Duke of Norfolk and really the aristocracy in England, in contrast to how it was done in some of the German aristocracies or Italian, it was very strictly on a patrilineal basis. The eldest son got everything. And Per Edmund got the Howard temper, but none of the money. So she had a lot of connections and certainly by the time she went to live with her step-grandmother who looked after her, later in life, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, she was living a relatively comfortable life, certainly in comparison to the vast majority of Tudor subjects. This was not a deprived childhood in terms of material comforts but her father actually was in chronic debt and even though he he did get a job as justice of the peace in Lambeth he was so in debt he had to go into hiding to avoid the enforcement of law in the area he was charged with enforcing the law and there were so many debt creditors after him that he told Cardinal Woolsey I can't go out into the streets because I will be arrested so there was a lot of potential privilege and certainly a great network you know a lot of her aunts married earls her grandfather and later her uncle were a duke but in terms of her very early childhood there was a silver spoon in her mouth but there wasn't a lot of food to go on the spoon is probably the closest I can summarize it as.
2: And what do we know about her mother's family family?
3: Well, her mother, I always refer to her as Jocasta, which is what she's in most of the later Howard Chronicles as, but they seem to have given her a bit of a glow up in later histories. She's Joyce, is the name that she goes by in most of the early Chronicles. She comes from a wealthy family. She was a Culpepper by birth, distantly. There's another Culpeper in this story, but they're very, very distantly related And she married a Lee, who was a sheriff in Lambeth. So both of those families were not astronomically wealthy, but certainly sort of local bigwigs. A certain amount of influence in Lambeth, which is where Edmund ended up living. She was a widow with five children by the time Edmund married her. So Catherine really was born into a very large, melded family.
2: Mm -hmm. And what do we know of Catherine's early life? Can we trace any of it?
3: We can trace a little. I was fairly confident that she was christened at what's now the Garden Museum in Lambeth, which was St Mary at Lambeth. The Howards were kind of turning into sort of like a necropolis almost for them, and you did under canon law at the time have to be baptised in a public church. They really didn't allow it in private chapels. So we can be fairly confident, given where her father was living, that she was born in Lambeth, baptised there. Her mother does seem to have died when she was very young, not in childbed, at least not with her, but she does seem to have died when Catherine was about maybe five, six or seven. It's a little difficult to date Joyce's death. We do know that Edmund remarried very quickly and that she also died within about a year or two of the wedding. And he then married again to a lady called Margaret Jennings, with whom he set up a new home in Calais, which was then under English control, and Edmund's niece Anne Boleyn, so Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were cousins, the first link in a deteriorating state of unhappy links between them. But Anne Boleyn was really in the ascendant at this point, and she evidently felt sorry for Uncle Edmund, and she stepped in and she found him a job that got him out of London. It was a brilliant position in terms of helping Edmund because it got him across the channel to the Peel of Calais, where he really was sort of beyond the jurisdiction of his creditors. But it meant that he left a lot of the children in the care of relatives, which was a fairly common part of aristocratic upbringing at the time. But that was when Catherine went to live with his stepmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk.
2: And What do we know about this time? Because the picture that's often painted, I suppose, is that you kind of have a dormitory of young ladies and they're up to no good. Is that true?
3: Yeah. There's certainly an element of high spirits, which is in no way criminal or libidinous, and you certainly wouldn't categorise it as that had it not been twisted in that way by Henry VIII's counsellors later. We owe a lot to Victorian historians, particularly Agnes Strickland, who wrote one of the early bestsellers in the popular history field, In the Lives of the Queens of England. And for Strickland, I and mean, she's very open about it, she says that the life of Catherine Howard should be used as a didactic lesson to well-born Victorian girls about the dangers of the first steps in sin. And she categorises the Duchess's care as neglect, and she characterises all the girls sleeping in this dormitory as lower class. And the Duchess's greatest dereliction of her duty as a caregiver was to place a blue-blooded girl like Catherine in a dormitory with, quote-unquote, lower-class females. And Strickland, like a lot of Victorians, believed that... The word lower class didn't just pertain to economics but also to moral standing, and they corrupted Catherine. That is very much the narrative that she created and that has in some ways stayed intact. Surely the granddaughter of a duke wouldn't behave this way with suitors outside her class if she hadn't been tainted and manipulated by the lower orders that she should never have been exposed to. So that version of the Duchess's care owes so much to Victorian attitudes to class, it's saturated with it. Certainly the Dowager Duchess does seem to have been away at court quite often. She was quite a strict guardian, but inconsistently strict. So when she found out one of the wards that she'd taken into her care was doing something that she considered inappropriate, she was quite prepared to punch, slap, discipline, etc. But it was such a big household that a lot of the time she didn't know what was happening. Catherine does seem at one point when she was involved with Francis Durham to have snuck in to the Dowager Duchess's private rooms, stolen a key, had a copy made so that she could sort of unlock the dormitory and she and her friends could let the men they were involved with come in and the men would go to the kitchen and steal strawberries and wine and apples and they would have nocturnal picnics. So there's a sense of something quite eternal in that idea of people young and wanting to stay up three at night and talk. She was at one point, though, with Francis Durham discussing marriage, and that then, of course, later becomes a much bigger issue.
2: So the standard narrative around Catherine's early years is that she has relationships with two men. Her music teacher, Henry Mannix, when we're told she was about 13, and then a couple of years later with Francis Durham, who we're told was a man much older than her. And these are either characterised as being sexually abusive, or we're told that Catherine was a good-time girl and was naturally promiscuous. What do you make of them?
3: Well, I actually initially really went into this believing that it had been a case of abuse, and I argue in the book... it wasn't in either case and that was such an important moment I think for me as a writer because that is an issue that absolutely demands so much sensitivity and thought but I think simply because something is not abusive doesn't mean that it's not inappropriate so I tried to reintroduce a little bit of a class element because I do think Henry Mannix as her music teacher was obviously significantly below her in the hierarchy, and she was slightly able to use the class to outweigh the overwhelming disadvantages created by gender in her favour when she wanted to end things. I mean, the evidence about their relationship in 1539 is, by Chitter standards, overwhelmingly detailed. We're very lucky so many of the sources have survived. I don't know what you think about this because I still go back and forward on whether I should have put it in the book and I think I was right not to. I'm always slightly dubious of trying to do, it's the Goldwater Protocol or whatever it's called, that you don't psychologically label someone that you haven't met or if you're not trained to do so. To me, I do think a lot of what Francis Durham did bears the mark of a classical narcissist. I remember reading this very long confession she made later in her life that she later tried to retract because I think she thought she made herself look bad in it. But it's so detailed that you can't disbelieve it. But I remember reading it and something struck a chill about how she was describing him and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I realised if you look at how their relationship progressed, it was sort of like love bombing. He gave her, you know, treats and he bought her silk that she wanted to make flowers for her hat at one point. Generally there was an avalanche of affection. And then it very quickly started to turn into possessiveness and trying to move the relationship far quicker than she wanted. And then when she left him and she said, I don't really want to be involved anymore, I'm going to court, he develops into this borderline stalker. He goes after her, tries to get a job. He really is obsessed with her. And to me, I wouldn't categorise the relationships as physically abusive in the way that we have been discussing recently. But I do think that these were two monumentally unpleasant people and that there was a really dark dynamic to those two relationships. In terms of Mannix, the first one you mentioned to you, you're right, was her music teacher. It was one of those points in Tudor history, often so many things are stated over and over again that we accept them by sort of osmosis. And one of them is that Henry Mannix and Catherine Howard's relationship began in 1536. But actually, the first comment that we have about it is from a nursery maid. She was in the nursery of Catherine's cousin. Mary Lassell's at that stage and she is talking about when she first heard about it so I had to figure out when she joined the household and her employer Lord William didn't join it until he came back from a diplomatic mission in France very convoluted but basically that was 1538 so actually the Mannix and Durham relationships were a lot closer in time And the evidence from Henry Mannix and Francis Durham's lives are not that they were significantly older than her. So in terms of some of the dynamics we've talked about, no, they don't fall quite into how they're presented generally. But that doesn't mean that these weren't, I think, very egotistical, quite controlling, arrogant men. That's how Henry Mannix and Francis Durham appeared to me after spending way too long in their company.
2: Thinking of Francis Durham, we are normally told that there's this massive age gap between the teenage Catherine and the 30-something-year-old Francis and that therefore the relationship is at least inappropriate. Do you not think that's the case?
3: No, he certainly seems to have been much closer to her in age. If you look at the company he's referred to in the household, the jobs he's given in the household, they're all ones that are assigned to much younger men. And he was previously involved with a woman called Joan Ackworth. She later becomes Joan Bulmer. We know that she is not significantly older than Catherine and also he is referred to as actually originally having been quite good friends with Henry Mannix and that they were in the same age bracket again and Mannix is explicitly referred to as being young Mannix and that sort of thing. So actually the idea that he's a lot older seems to have appeared really in the 20th century. It's not borne out at all by the contemporary evidence.
2: so interesting. I mean, it's absolutely the case that we have these stories that are passed down to us that we just accept at face value and we have to go back and interrogate them all. And I'm also with you that the Victorians have completely tainted our idea about these
3: things. Well, it's really hard, isn't it? Because if you've loved history for much of your life, which I have, you were devouring books... We're based largely on these Victorian versions of Tudor history from childhood. And sometimes these stories have a slightly sentimental attachment for you. And you have to break yourself away from it.
0: Mm,
2: That's right. So we have two relationships that you are suggesting are basically consensual. But that Francis Durham, at least, doesn't take no for an answer when it comes to an end.
3: Yeah, Mannix kind of does something similar. When he finds out she is now involved with his friend, Francis. he leaves an anonymous note to the Dowager Duchess, which is just such a fantastically scummy thing to do, saying, if you pretend to go to bed at the normal time and then go up to the maiden's chamber, which is her dormitory, you'll be surprised at what you find. And luckily, Someone tips Catherine off in time, and she manages to steal a copy of the letter, shows it to Francis, who realises Mannix wrote it. Mannix and Francis come to blows. But Francis, in particular, really does not take no for an answer when she breaks things off in the autumn of 1539. She later tells Archbishop Cranmer that everyone who knew her knew how desirous I was to come to court. She did not leave Francis reluctantly. I think actually she was starting to feel really suffocated by his talk of the marrying and he was starting to refer to her in front of their friends as his future wife and she felt it was turning into a run to the altar that she was not happy with. And he constantly tries to follow her to court when he hears there's a rumour she might be involved with someone else. He goes to court and argues with her and she says, I'm not, but if I was, it isn't any of your business. He then, in a very melodramatic move, goes to Ireland for a while and stays there. And when he comes back, by this point, Catherine has married the king. And I argue in the book, from the fragmentary evidence that we have, that her grandmother and her Aunt, the Countess of Bridgewater, and her uncle William try to manage Francis because he does have the potential to cause a scandal for her. And it seems to be that he puts in a locked chest at the Dodge or Duchess's home ballads he wrote about Catherine, love letters, but he keeps the key. They bring him to court to introduce her. It all seems to be treading water, if I'm honest. There seems to be a sense of trying to give him enough to keep him quiet and on side. And then in August 1541, a year after her marriage, he has an epic falling out with the Duchess of Norfolk and rides north and demands to join her household. He's there when the downfall begins in November of that year. So as I was researching this, to me, his behaviour was unhinged. To describe it as suicidally reckless is not too much of an exaggeration. Who, from the safety of Ireland, comes back, tries to bribe the Howards and then puts himself right in the centre of Henry VIII's court working for someone he claims he's in love with? I mean, it's insane. And to me, that bears all the hallmarks of a very possessive, I mean, I think I described him as having the emotional immediacy of a toddler in the book, and I stand by that. He really does just seem to have been someone who would not let her go.
2: This feels like a very sort of prurient question, but of course it does have bearing to ask, do we know how far they went? Do we know if they actually went through any ceremony that would under Tudor law have made them husband and wife?
3: We do know in terms of sex, yeah, how far they went, partly because Catherine... When she lived at the Duchess of Norfolk she shared a bed with someone called Catherine Tilney and at one point during one of those sort of nocturnal picnics Francis and Catherine whether they were having sex or sort of initiating it we don't know but Catherine Tilney was in the bed and got up and moved and we do know that at another point at least twice people in the dormitory heard them they make jokes about it so as far as we can be certain With that level of documentation and that specifically, yes, they did have sex and more than once. In terms of a ceremony, I tend to think Catherine was telling the truth when she said that the discussions of them becoming husband and wife were discussions that he had that she sort of politely responded to. I don't think there was a ceremony and I think it meant a lot more to him in terms of almost trying to pressure her into making that promise, and I don't think she really wanted to. And actually, she held out very well. There was a lot more tenacity to Catherine than I think she's given credit for. She was very clear with Francis that she didn't want to be referred to publicly as his wife or his wife-to-be.
2: Sorry to press this point, but I'm thinking about the fact that if at this time you made a promise to marriage in words of the future, as they call it, like you say, I will marry you rather than I do, and then consummated the union, technically under the canon law of the time, that counted as marriage, clandestine as it was.
3: Well, she is clinging to... The slenderest of technicalities. And I do think actually a recurring question is why didn't she just admit that this had happened and that she was pre contracted to Francis Durham? Because then Henry would have let her go and dissolved the marriage and they wouldn't have continued investigating her, which I think is perhaps hoping for the best under Henry VIII in the 1540s, which is a slightly forlorn hope. But For her, it would have meant complete social ruin, but I also think she really clung to the fact that she had woven as best she could around the details of that. But you're right, in many ways, if Francis had asked that or had even laid that verbal trap or said, you know, would you one day want to marry me? And they had consummated it. Yes, canon law under the time did back up his version of events, which is mind-boggling. I think the two of them saw it very differently, which happens so often in modern life. People interpret things differently. But traditionally, had he asked that question, which I assume he did, and they then consummated it, which they evidently did, it is hard to completely dismiss Francis's argument, even if his behavior remains pretty reprehensible.
2: So then Catherine goes to court to join the household of the incoming queen, Anna, from the Duchy of Cleves. And before Henry even notices her, someone else has.
3: Yes, I had always followed the, it's the most famous quote, by the way, about her appearance by Charles de Mariac, the French ambassador, where he says she's not that beautiful, but she's very graceful. When I started looking at more and more accounts, he might have had sort of a Gallic contrarian streak because everyone else says, oh no, she's extraordinarily beautiful, blazing beauties used, lady of great beauty. So yeah, almost as soon as she arrives at court, Thomas Culpepper, one of the gentlemen of the King's Privy Chamber, notices her, they begin a romance and actually she does seem to be quite taken with him. She wasn't, by the way, a particularly sentimental person. There's not a lot of accounts of her being particularly weak. That is not what emerges from the accounts. And she seems to have been quite embarrassed by the fact that when she found out that Thomas Culpepper had moved on to somebody else, she broke down in tears in front of other ladies-in-waiting. So I think certainly at that point, she did have real romantic feelings for Thomas Culpepper before the king noticed her.
2: And what do we know of the chronology of Catherine's affair with the king?
3: We can be fairly certain that he noticed her very briefly when she arrived at court. He seems to have made some sort of comment about how beautiful she is. But really, we do know at Easter he gives her several gifts. Some things, bedsheets, goods of condemned criminals are signed over to her. But then it's really May and June where things take off. That's when Anne of Cleves hears about the affair and also gossip starts in London that the king is interested in the Duke of Norfolk's niece. So my guess would be March probably of 1540 is when we start to see things. It just gives enough time for a certain romance or liaison to have developed in time for the Easter gifts he gives her.
2: Mm, That makes sense. And I guess... Given that you've just mentioned her beauty, apart from in the eyes of a rather grumpy mahiac, obviously one of the big questions about Catherine is what does she look like? And there's multiple alleged portraits, and you've analysed this in one of your appendices to the book. Which do you think can be trusted to be Catherine, if any? (laughs)
3: I don't think there are, if I'm honest, any that leap out to me. The one in the Metropolitan Museum, which is on the cover of the British edition, is a maybe. There's problems with all of them, and it's very, very difficult to say with certainty. Mm. The sort of the half-length of the lady in the navy dress with the white French hood that's frequently cited as her, I would eat my fingers before I said that was her. I'm just absolutely convinced it's probably Jane Seymour's sister, Elizabeth. The miniature... In the gold dress again it could be a lot of other people so no i don't really think that there are any that leap out some are more likely than others but she was queen for such a short period of time and then she was disgraced which meant i don't think people were commissioning posthumous portraits either so i always feel like a bit of a historical grinch with this but no i don't think there are any portraits of her for certain
2: I had exactly the same conversation working on an edit for a TV show where we talk about Catherine Howard and the classic portrait is used. And I've had to say, "Well, that definitely isn't her. Like this one, (laughs) this one probably isn't her, the one that you've got on your cover. But it's at least more plausible than the one you're using. But this is actually important because, at least in our understanding of history, it's obviously important what she looked like full stop. But also, if we go on the portrait, if you Google Catherine Howard, that will come up... That portrait, which you think might be Jane Seymour's sister, is of a dumpy, older, unattractive woman. And it completely changes your view of Catherine Howard. I'm sorry to be cruel to Jane Seymour's sister, but it does, I think, mean that you sort of doubt these accounts which say that she's beautiful and you're more likely to believe Mariac. And that, of course, gives you a kind of bias towards the evidence.
3: I think you're absolutely right. And also with the Elizabeth Seymour meets Catherine Howard incognito portrait, There is also a sense of older. I mean, it actually says she's 21 in the background. And there was a theory not too long ago to try to rehabilitate that portrait. They started saying, oh, well, Catherine must have been born around 1518, which was absurd. You were completely changing the entire narrative of someone's life to rehabilitate this portrait so it's potentially more appealing in an auction room. That's where the portrait thing I think becomes worrying from a historical perspective.
2: Very good. Yes, that's right. It is often about how much money these raise at auction and if you put the Appalachian Queen on it, it's going to sell
3: in a way
2: that's not if it's some unknown woman at the court. So back to Catherine's experience. So at the end of July 1540, on the same day as Thomas Cromwell is beheaded, Henry VIII, having put aside Anne of Cleves, now marries Catherine Howard. Much of your work has been on Catherine's household as queen. Tell me about that.
3: It's a large household and in contrast to all of Henry's wives bar Anne of Cleves, she hadn't had a lot of experience of life at court, you know, she really went from being a minor member of the household to being in charge of it. But as Queen she is so different to the stereotype we have of her. I was so pleased uncovering some of the ambassadorial dispatches and eyewitness accounts of her at her first Christmas as Queen in particular which is spent at Hampton Court And these very seasoned, quite cynical foreign diplomats are complimenting how dignified she is, how elegant her grasp of etiquette, which means so much in Tudor politics, is really astute. When she isn't sure on an etiquette problem, particularly when she's asked to host Anne of Cleves for Christmas 1540, which is obviously just an emotional and decorum minefield for her, She doesn't just send for Lord Sussex, who's the Lord Chamberlain with the purview of etiquette. She also sends the Lord Chancellor, who is the head honcho in legal matters. And she asks, can you put together where decorum and the law can guide me in how to behave in this situation? So as a public Queen Consort, she was very well suited to the role she acquired with her marriage. This image is of a sort of gaudy, extravagant, vulgar airhead, which is how she is still often presented, is completely negated by the eyewitness accounts. She's slightly less successful as a manager of the household, which I think we can give her a certain amount of leeway on simply because of that lack of experience I mentioned. She, again, is good at delegating which is an excellent skill when you have an establishment that large she has no experience with land management and the queen's household is funded by rents and revenues generated by the land bestowed on it by the king and she leaves that to her solicitors she leaves that to her council and these men who've been running the many estates throughout the many queens of henry the time so she does that well she has a slightly unhelpful tendency to play favourites with her ladies in wedding. And in particular, in the Easter after her marriage, she becomes a lot closer to one of them, Liddy Rochford. This puts a few noses out of joint in the rest of the household. And she also, in what's probably her least likeable trait, I think, Again, you always bring a little bit of yourself to your writing. I'm always of the opinion that the person who isn't nice to the waiter but is nice to everyone else isn't a very nice person. But she does have this tendency when she's slightly frazzled to be quite horrible to her maids. She can threaten them with firing them if they don't obey her or if they misunderstand something she can be quite short-tempered and a little bit callous and she's not above at one point threatening to fire two maids who her stepdaughter mary loves because mary has been rude to her so it's a complex picture of a nuanced person there are things she does really well there are things that she knows she can't do and she's sensible enough to delegate them and there are slightly less attractive traits in how she runs her household
2: one curious decision is that she accepts an approach from her ex's ex, Joan Bulmer, to join her household. What do you make of that?
3: Well, she gets this letter where Joan seems, by the way, to be really unhappily married. And Catherine takes the letter, but she does seem to delay it because Joan doesn't seem to have been in the household by November 1541. So actually... It feeds into the sense of treading water, actually. I think there's a sense of panic the whole time. They don't ever say no to the people who know about her and Francis, but they can't say either yes or no. So they sort of fob them off with tidbits of favour. But Joan's letter is extraordinary. We're so lucky it survives because she lays on sycophancy with a trial that sort of takes the breath away. You know, God, of course, picked you. Who's better equipped to be queen? I wish I could say more about why I want to be with you, but I'll say it in person. And then you get the hint of the blackmail. It's a queenship that's, I think, treading water almost in the moment the ring's on her finger.
1: Hmm. OK, Tristan,
0: you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right. So Dan's given me a few seconds to
3: sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries
0: this seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world as far as we can tell anywhere in the world we've got the big names
1: it's one of these
2: great things pompeii it's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction
0: we've
3: got the big topics the man destroys seven legions in a day no one in history has
0: done that subscribe to the ancients from history hit wherever you get your podcast from Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread
3: the word, people. Spread the word.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi.
0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
2: crucial part of her downfall comes in the summer progress of 1541. What happens there? Or to put another way, was Catherine guilty?
3: I went back and forth on this, and it's not as clear-cut as is the case with Anne Boleyn, in which I think you have to perform acrobatics to make a case that she was guilty. But it is interesting that Catherine does make a fairly similar vie at the end of her life after her last confession with Dr. White that she was innocent. And again, I think it's more ambiguous than it was with Anne Boleyn, but I do think it would be an extraordinary risk to take right before your execution in a particularly religious society. But I would say that's a case of Catherine once again clinging to a technicality. This is all I can say from the sources. Personally, I don't think her and Thomas Culpepper, when they resumed their relationship, that they did sleep together I think that they would have had they not been caught when they were so she around easter actually of 1541 holy week it was monday thursday she starts giving him gifts they start having private conversations again and then during this royal tour of the north the progress of 1541 they start meeting late at night her favourite lady-in-waiting, Lady Rochford, arranges some of the meetings. Sometimes they meet in the Queen's lavatory, in smaller rooms, in the different houses they stay in during the tour. There's a lot of romantic banter, this sort of bad back and forth between them. He teases her about the fact that they could have had this before she married the king and she makes a joke about giving him bracelets so that he'll remember her when his arms are wrapped around another woman. But when they get back to Hampton Court, there is an investigation into her in which they discover a love letter that she's written him. And Thomas Culpepper is interrogated by various counsellors. And to me, the crucial quote is in an interrogation headed by Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford. When Culpepper says, oh, well, we hadn't had sex, but we would have, or we wanted to, And Edward Seymour replies with, that's already too much, because obviously with how Henry VIII had expanded the treason laws, thought, intent to commit treason became as bad as committing it. So in terms of the quote-unquote moral crime of adultery, or in terms simply of the biographical detail of whether or not she committed adultery... In the physical sense of the word, I would say no. But in terms of the legal standards of the time, just by how swollen the treason definition had become, yes, even though she didn't. And they're very open about this at the time, if you really look in detail. They don't say she's condemned for adultery. They say she is condemned for the intent to commit it, which is bone chilling.
1: Mm.
2: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because adultery, or indeed our definition of her guilt, rests on... Quite a technical definition of sex as well, being very phallocentric, I think we might be able to say. And also, it actually rests on an incorrect definition of treason. Because crucially, of course, the thing about Catherine Howard, as you well know, is that it isn't a crime to commit adultery. It wasn't actually treason even when Anne Boleyn had done it. It wasn't treason for a queen to commit adultery. It was treason to rape a queen. And so they have to make it law in order to convict Catherine.
3: It's circus-like acrobatics in terms of the law. They have to pass through legislation saying that it's all right to execute the insane, which had been illegal beforehand, because Catherine's favourite, Lady Rochford, suffers a complete nervous breakdown. Henry releases her from prison into the care of Lady Russell, who is essentially told nurse her back to health so that we can execute her, which is the inversion of the Hippocratic Oath. But Lily Rochford doesn't really recover, so they have to bring in legislation that allows them to execute someone who clearly is mentally unfit to stand trial. There is such a sense in Henry VIII's reaction of real vindictiveness, a thirst for vengeance, The House of Lords, when it comes to Catherine, gets cold feet and tries to say as best they can, we're not sure that the case against her is death penalty worthy, to use sort of modern parlance. They don't think there's enough evidence and the Privy Council and the King have to push hard to get this death sentence through.
2: But that letter to Culpeper, which you mentioned, which ends, yours as long as life endures, implies that Catherine's heart, at least, has been given away.
3: I think that's true. And I should say, just in terms of the debate, there are some people who think that the letter implies that he was somehow blackmailing her. And I just think from having seen it and read it, that that really is not borne out by the language at all. It's actually, in many ways, it reminds you of that discombobulating rush of falling in love. The letter was written at a point when he was under the weather, he's a bit sick, and she says things, you know, that... Her heart longed to see him and she was so sorry to hear he was sick and she was sending food to his room to make him better. It's actually, apart from the lethal connotations, it's quite sweet from her and that as long as life endures, it's very difficult to construe that as anything other than love. And sometimes I don't think we give that enough credit in history, the power of theological and human beings' capacity to act in ways counterintuitive to their well-being. Culpepper manifestly was not a candidate for sainthood. There is a particularly horrible story repeated by an evangelical merchant after Culpepper is dead where he says that when Culpepper was riding high in the king's favour he had sexually assaulted a park keeper's wife and then murdered someone who tried to rescue her. I discuss this in the book because it's a bit of a difficult one to pin down, partly because Thomas Culpepper had a brother called Thomas Culpepper. It wasn't that unusual, frustratingly for historians, for very large Tudor families to give the same Christian name to children. So there are two Thomas Culpepers. So we don't know if the Thomas Culpepper who committed those crimes was the one involved later with the Queen. But even if it wasn't, I would say Culpepper must have used his influence to help get his brother off scot-free from those crimes, if the merchant was telling the truth, which I think seems likely, but it could have been either Culpepper. Either way, Culpepper does emerge as quite arrogant. He had hurt her before, when they were romantically involved, before she became queen, he had left her for somebody else. So it's not that the love was being projected onto a worthy object, and certainly there is a tendency in some dramatic portrayals on screen to show them almost like Romeo and Juliet or Helen in Paris that's certainly not the impression I had of them you can love someone unworthy and I think that's what happened and she was taking very great risks for someone who could have been worth it given the dangerous stacked against her
2: so the way that she's often judged then is being guilty of being foolish what do you say to that
3: yeah you can't go into a biography trying to exculpate or damn someone. You have to take them where the evidence will lead you. I did have people say that I was too critical of her, and some said that I was far too sympathetic because I wasn't harsh enough on her for her stupidity. Everyone is capable of moments of idiocy. There were things that she did, particularly meeting with Thomas Culpepper in her lavatory at night. There is no way to PR that. Yes, it was extreme foolishness, but also it says more about that where the Henrician state was by 1541 to 1542, that something that foolish was transmogrified into something that monstrous. I absolutely do not detract from the argument that she made a lot of mistakes, but it's a long leap to go from she was foolish, therefore she deserved it. I think you can separate those things. Yes, she was foolish, that does not mean she deserved it the very cumbersome legal methods used to send her to the block.
2: Two cousins, both queens, both wives of Henry VIII, both beheaded for adultery, but you say you think it's unhelpful to compare the fate of Catherine Howard with that of Anne Boleyn. Why do you think that is?
3: I think it's only helpful if you want to show the differences, which is very seldom what's done. Anne Boleyn's downfall is really a study in speed when you're arrested on the 2nd of May and you're dead by the 19th, that is fast, even by early modern standards. There really wasn't a lot of evidence, so they had to move quickly before too many questions could be asked. With Catherine, it starts on the 2nd of November and it doesn't end until the 13th of February. That is a much longer period of time. There is evidence that something had gone on. There are round upon round of interrogations And in that sense, we are looking at a government that I would argue reached a very harsh conclusion, but they were being led by the evidence as they sought. So in terms of the tragedy of Anne Boleyn and the tragedy of Catherine Howard, the final moment is very similar, but the road to it is very different.
2: Catherine is arrested and she's taken to the Tower and Cramer interrogates her. What do you make of Cramer's interrogations?
3: Cranmer was a really interesting figure. I mean, he always is. You can't quite put a pin on Cranmer and whether he's on the side of the angels or not. In the world of Tudor historiography, Cranmer generally doesn't have too many harsh critics. He's seen as someone who is fairly dedicated to the Protestant cause, a man of God. And certainly in comparison to the very aggressive politicians that are around him, We're not looking at someone who has quite the same reputation, but there were comments in his account of the interrogations that send a shudder. He says, this is how I use her thus. He did feel sorry for her. He said she had worked herself up into such a dangerous ecstasy of fear that he worried, was she going to have a complete nervous breakdown? But he let her work herself up. He let her retract confessions and change them and edit them. And then he could use that as proof that she was lying about other things. And there is a very sinister sense of a wolf in sheep's clothing with this. Dermot McCulloch, who wrote a phenomenal biography of Thomas Cranmer, does call it one of the worst episodes in his career. I'm paraphrasing slightly there. But it's a very, very unpleasant account of the interrogation because he really does give her enough rope to hang herself. And had he maybe tried to guide her a little bit more, it mightn't have gotten to the stage where certain people in the Privy Council believed because of these manifest inconsistencies in her three confessions that she was lying about everything. I should say the interrogation initially started because a former family servant told her brother about Catherine and Francis Durham. He went to Archbishop Cramer who told the king. So initially it's an investigation into was she pre-contracted, as we've discussed, and ineligible to be queen. And as she's panicking about the Francis Durham thing, she throws Thomas Culpepper's name into the conversation and says Francis was jealous of him, but there's no reason because obviously nothing was going on. At which point the Archbishop wonders why you would bring up Thomas Culpepper if he was irrelevant. And that's when they search his room and find the love letters. So in many ways, Cranmer allowing her to reach that fever pitch of fear and she does seem to have been really terrified allowing her to reach that stage was almost allowing her to write her own death warrant it's an unsavoury impression created by the archbishop in his own account of the interrogations
2: i do wonder whether there was ever any way that she was going to get out of it you know you can imagine somebody who was more full of guile who felt less guilt might have been able to brazen it out You know, it's when we know that we've done something wrong that we really show it on our faces, right? So I wonder if there was ever a way that she could have come out of it better, but I'm not sure, really, with Henry at that time.
3: I think you're right. I mean, I have wondered that, and I do say she lied quite clumsily very early on, and that sort of gave the stench of blood to the bloodhounds, as it were. And I have wondered if she had held her nerve for a day longer... Or if she had been prepared to throw Francis under the bus a lot earlier, maybe. But they really had started to interrogate the family servants or question them. And they compartmentalised them really well to make sure they couldn't cross-contaminate each other's testimony. It's not a case that they were all telling the interrogators what they wanted to hear. So I think the avalanche had started by the time it caught up with her. So I don't know. I ask myself that all the time, but I think with the nature of the investigation and where Henry was by 1541, I don't think there was much chance. I think the minute John Lassells, the sort of first quote-unquote witness, went to Archbishop Cranmer, I think it was a done deal.
2: When you are looking at the story of Catherine Howard, so much of the early evidence of her life rests on these interrogations gathered in 1541. How did that affect you when you were working on it?
3: So I had to start by really looking at how the counsellors and people asking the questions had gripped these people and it became very clear that they gripped them into when the people they were questioning had been most involved in Catherine's life. They only seem to have started asking leading questions much later on, particularly to Catherine's step-grandmother, the or Duchess, and to her aunt, the phenomenal Countess of Bridgewater, who braced out the interrogations in such a magnificent way. But with the servants earlier on, they don't seem to have tried to lead them, because bear in mind, they didn't know what they were going on. I should say, of course there is the temptation, and rightfully so, to wonder how much was... This telling their questioners what they thought they wanted to hear. And that doesn't seem to have been too much of a problem early on. There's a very definite point when torture is threatened or potentially used on a man called Robert Damport towards the tail end where he does start to contradict his earlier testimonies. In terms of research, what I did was I compared the notes from separate groups to see where they correlated with each other. And if they did, and they kind of corroborate one another's viewpoint, then I can make a fairly confident guess that they're telling the truth. If you have half a dozen people saying the same thing and they have all been kept separate from each other, there's no logical reasons to disbelieve it. What is interesting, and in a way quite touching, was even though they were being questioned about her there's still an element in some of them of quite a lot of affection for Catherine. They don't insult her. They don't try to diminish her in order to see of themselves. And so in that sense, I had to also respond as a biographer to that in how I presented her character. This was someone who was very popular and I think quite charismatic. So there were lots of things she could take from them, but you had to ask some tough questions at the start.
2: My last question for you is... Why did you write a biography of Catherine Howard? What drew you to her?
3: Hubris and accident, I would say. I was doing my master's dissertation. Dr James Davis was my supervisor and I went in with far too much confidence in my idea and I said, I would like to write a study of the Queen's household from, say, Margaret of Anjou to Catherine Parr. And he had that very yet polite frozen face, and I could see him trying to figure out a kind way to say, that's absurd. And he said, no, I think you should pick a queen with a short tenure so you can go into depth. That's what we're looking for. Not a half century long epic. So obviously Henry VIII provided us with several queens who weren't there for a protracted length of time. But Catherine was a gift in terms of the thesis because I could study it being formed in residence, on tour and falling apart. So really it was a utilitarian choice. And towards the end, I was talking about it with Catherine Clinton, who was the professor of American history. And she said, you know, I think if you find out that many different things about her, there might be the idea for a biography in it. So it sprang from a really shaky idea on a master's thesis. And then the more research I did in the dissertation, I realised that a lot of what we know about Catherine is negated when you look at her household. So thesis and then the idea for a biography. And on and off, it was about five years research for Young and Damned and Fair and I do still miss it in a strange way because she was great company for half a decade of my life. So you do form an attachment to subjects like that.
2: Would you consider writing a biography of another woman of the period?
3: Certainly, yeah. If I found something that I thought I could contribute something meaningful to, I certainly would. I'm working on a book about Hampton Court at the moment and one of the chapters is a bit more on Jane Seymour, another a bit more on Catherine Parr and unless we find a stash of new documents I don't think there's really enough in Jane Seymour that could sustain a really long biography. I know Elizabeth Norton did a good shorter length one but Jane's always going to be a bit enigmatic. But it is nice sometimes moving around to a slightly different focus in that period. I love it. The Tudor period is, I think it was Antal Jarb was the historian. He said, I love history as my country of refuge. And I sort of think like that. You do feel like coming home to these periods you've spent so long with.
2: Well, you have certainly given us some refuge from our ordinary lives and some thinking about a wonderful and fascinating character from the past. So thank you so much, Gareth, for being with us. Oh
3: no, Thank you very much.
2: If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you.
1: Hold up. What was that?